to be selfish. We were all born in this sin. And really, it's an enmity toward God. Uh, just the idea of God, that there's somebody who's going to judge me. I, you know, automatically, there's a human pushback. If you're going to judge me, uh, I don't like you. And God is going to judge me. And so there's a natural enmity. And yet, while we were still enemies with God, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins. And today's text speaks of uh, what Jesus did. So that John and you and me who trust Jesus Christ as our Savior are no longer enemies. We are children of God. And beyond that, we are priestly children of God. In the Old Testament, the high priest alone went into the Holy of Holies. But you, in Jesus Christ, enter the veil which is his, through the veil, his flesh. You enter the very presence of the Heavenly Father. You are a believer priest in Jesus Christ. Let's look at this today. We're in Revelation chapter 1 verse 4. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. God, we love you, and thank you that you have loved us. Thank you that you gave your son Jesus to die for our sins. Lord, we have not come into this house today to show what good people we are. Uh, we know better than that. We have come to this house today to declare what a good Savior we have in your Son, Jesus Christ. What a good God we have. And God, we have come today to submit to your Holy Spirit that he would open up your word to us and help us to understand the Scriptures and apply it to our hearts. God, I pray that I would not leave here today after having preached your word unchanged. I pray, Father, that I would have a greater regard for my Savior, Jesus Christ, that I would be more willing to submit to your spirit, that I would be a changed man for having shared your word. And I pray, Lord, the same for everyone who would hear your word today, that it would not return to you void and empty, but it would return to you having worked in our hearts and caused us to walk with you and to praise you. Thank you, God, for the delightful fellowship we've had today around food and just the love we have for one another. We pray you'd give us fellowship around your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. As we uh, start here, we have an outline you can follow along in the bulletin. Um, while there were a great number of churches in his day, John is addressing his re revelation to seven churches in Asia. You see that first phrase in uh, John uh, Revelation 1, verse 4. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Now, John was from Jerusalem, and he is uh, ministering now in Asia Minor. Asia Minor, I would be to under, understand to be uh, 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 modern-day Turkey, if you will. And my understanding is that John actually fled to the area of Asia Minor in the 60s A.D., uh, this was when the rebellion of Jerusalem and the Jews against Rome was really starting to foment. And I'm understanding that that was the impetus to cause him to leave the area. And, uh, of course, in 70 AD, Jerusalem was overrun by the Romans. The temple was destroyed. By that time, John was already ministering in Asia Minor. I understand the book of Revelation to be 95 AD, so some 30 years later, three decades ministering in Asia Minor. I think there were a lot more than seven churches in Asia Minor. 
by that time. I think there were hundreds. And yet, this is written to seven churches. What do we do with the number seven here? Uh, we've said in our, we had our list of rules for interpreting symbols in Revelation. We take the number literally, and yet we also take it symbolically. The number seven was always a number of completion in the Bible. And so when he writes to the seven churches in Asia Minor, I believe that these seven churches are really representative of all the churches in Asia Minor, really of all the issues the churches were facing in Asia Minor, and we're going to study that over the next month or so. But um, while the, the number seven is symbolic and it represents a total, in fact, I would even suggest that the seven churches in Asia Minor perhaps represent the kind of problems you can have in any church today as well. So when it says the seven churches in Asia Minor, I don't think that there were just seven in all of Asia Minor. This is the seven that represents a completeness of God's revelation to the church in Asia Minor. So while the number seven is symbolic, it's also literal. There were seven churches that will be addressed. Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Smyrna, Philadelphia, Laodicea, and Ephesus. And uh, he is uh, writing from the island of Patmos, and some think he was maybe exiled there. We don't know. Um, but he is literally going to write to these seven churches. Now, John gives a greeting from the Father, from the seven spirits before his throne, something that's really not so easy to translate and uh, to interpret, and from Jesus Christ in verse 4. He says, grace to you and peace. This is a standard greeting, although it is also a wish for God to give grace and peace, to instill grace and peace into your life. Grace and peace from him who is and was and who is to come, that would be who? God the Father, okay? And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, who are they or who is he? We'll get back to that. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of earth. So we have the Father, we have the Son, who are the seven spirits. Uh, is this a Trinity passage? Speaking of the Godhead, uh, the Father, the Son, and the seven spirit beings being the Holy Spirit, or these several, seven angels? Now, um, in, in the original language, there's two words, seven and spirits. In the NIV, if you have an NIV Bible, they will note it could be the sevenfold spirit. And there's a passage in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 2 through 5, that talk about the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit, um, and some link it to that. Uh, if you believe that this is seven angels, I don't think you're going to get in a lot of trouble theologically. The, the biggest problem you're probably going to have is that these three parties are issuing grace and peace into the life of humanity. He says, grace and peace from the Father, the seven spirits, and from Jesus Christ. Now, I would suggest to you that only deity can give grace and peace, that angels, angelic beings are not the ones who issue that. They may relay messages for God, they may minister on behalf of God, but grace and peace comes from deity. So I'm seeing all three of these. But, but if you believe it's seven angels, um, uh, I don't think you're going to get into trouble theologically. I'm going to go with the Holy Spirit. If you have your Bibles, turn to Zechariah chapter 4 and verse number 2, and I'll just explain a little bit why. Of course, whenever we have a symbol like seven spirits, uh, we, if the immediate context tells us the interpretation, we're done. And we'll see that with the seven candlesticks and the seven stars that represent the seven churches and the seven messengers. The immediate context does not tell us 
what this symbol is, these seven spirits. So we go to broader scriptures, and there's several directions you could go. Um, I'm going to go to Zechariah chapter 4, verse number 2. Now, this is a vision. He said to me, what do you see? I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand of all gold with a bowl on top of it, and seven lamps. Now, a lamp in the Bible time was this little pod. It could be metal or clay. It held olive oil and had a wick. And so if you had a, a lampstand with seven wicks, uh, seven lamps on it, you had seven little bowls with a wick that's burning. Okay, a lampstand is what you'd use to, to cast light into a situation, to be able to see, to be able to reveal things. And so what we have here, he says in Zechariah 4, 2, um, a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. So a lamp reveals so you could see, it uncovers things, and lips communicate. That's a symbolic uh, symbol here. And so what is it representing? Here the immediate context is going to tell us. Let's keep reading. Verse 3, and there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on the left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? And then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, who is about to rebuild the temple. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So Zerubbabel, you're trying to understand what this lamp is with seven lamps and seven lips? Seven lamps that reveal and seven lips that communicate? It's not by, the the, the message behind this is it's not by your power, it's not by your might, it's not by the great size of this temple. In fact, it's going to be pretty small but rather it is by my spirit. That is what this is getting at. Now let's keep reading. Uh, It's by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Verse number 7 of Zechariah 4. Who are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? You shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands also shall complete it. Then you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things, and again, this was a smaller temple, shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which range throughout the whole earth. So these seven, that seven is referring to the seven lamps with seven lips. And what are these? These are the eyes of the Lord which range to the whole earth. And in the middle of the passage, verse number 6, by my spirit. The meaning of this vision is that by my spirit you are going to rebuild this. By my spirit you are going to accomplish this. And yet here the spirit is represented by uh, seven lamps with seven lips and seven eyes which range throughout the whole world. So I'm taking this symbol of seven spirits that stand before the throne of God to be the Holy Spirit. Now, if you turn to Revelation chapter 5, verse number 6, that should be the last passage I need you to turn to today, but Revelation chapter 5, verse number 6, it's a few pages behind. We're going to see the seven spirits as well again. Revelation 5 and verse number 6, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns, horns represent power, and with seven eyes, which represent insight or being able to see. 
which are the seven spirits of God sent throughout all the earth. Again, seven spirits or sevenfold spirit. I just take it as seven spirits. And again, I would not take that to be seven spirit beings, angels. If you do, I don't think you're going to get into big trouble. I just think you're missing out on seeing the Holy Spirit at work in this venue. Now, we also know that the, the lamb, here, here in Revelation 5, the lamb is the one who has seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits. So the lamb has the Holy Spirit in verse number 5. And this is, this is consistent with what Jesus testified, that he has the Holy Spirit to send. In John 15, verse 26, he said, But when the Helper comes, referring to the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, so the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and from the Son, uh, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And of course, that's what John and Anne testified today as well, that the Holy Spirit really was responsible for illuminating the Word of God as they read the Gospel of John, as they heard the Gospel preached. The Holy Spirit is the one who said, do you see this? This is truth. This is Jesus Christ. And so that's exactly what Jesus said would happen. I'm going to send the Helper, who is from the Father. He proceeds from the Father, and he's going to bear witness to me and he has done so. So, um, the Holy Spirit... Okay, now here, I really, I really need you to listen to me, especially you Baptists, fellow Baptists, okay? Um, let it never be said that we are not excited about the Holy Spirit, that we don't love the Holy Spirit. Baptists love the Holy Spirit. We are very much jazzed about what the Holy Spirit does. He, he indwells us, he seals us, he convicts us of sin, he cleanses us. And I think sometimes because there are certain groups who take the Holy Spirit gifts and misapply them, that, that we are like, oh, well, we've got to kind of back away from all this Holy Spirit stuff. No, we don't. In fact, even the, the showy gifts of miracles and tongues, that we love tongues. They were a beautiful miracle. In Acts chapter 2, it was clear. People were speaking in languages they didn't know with the right dialect, with the right accent, and people were marveling that this was clearly a miraculous event. It was beautiful. Tongues was a beautiful, beautiful gift. And we don't see it active today because we see the, 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 the message here is complete. We have a completed word of God. We don't need showy miracles. That's not to say that God can't help a missionary or a tribe communicate in another language and in, in some isolated thing, but, but that's not the same thing. That's God supernaturally working. The, the gift of tongues was this beautiful, affirming miracle that people could watch and see and say, yes, uh, this is miraculous. I can confirm that. Same with the miracles. Uh, you know, I could pray for you today, and God might supernaturally heal you. I mean, just reach in past Mayo Clinic and past Olmsted Hospital and just reach into your life and touch you and heal you. He could do that supernaturally. The difference is, I am not going to call together an assembly and call my shot before I hit it and say, today, by the Holy Spirit, I'm going to heal Adam. Uh, and, and it's going to happen. No. Because I don't need a showy miracle today. I have a complete authoritative word of God. I do need to pray for you. And I am excited when God reaches through and supernaturally heals people inexplicably. As we had the testimony of Anne today, she should not have lived. That was the hand of God working on her life with dead intestine inside her body. Absolutely supernatural. 
but not a miracle. There was nobody there with a special message from God saying, I'm going to preserve her life against all science in order to declare to you some new truth from God. I have no new truth. If anything I'm saying to you today does not square with this, uh, you need to fire me. I need to be done, right? So we love the Holy Spirit. And we also love Holy Spirit power. Do you know what Holy Spirit power looks like? It's not a power encounter where it's me against a demon, me and the Holy Spirit against some demon. Holy Spirit power is when I am alone with my cell phone, scrolling. And I'm tempted to look at something or read something that I should not look at or I should not read. And the Holy Spirit in me convicts me that, Tim, you should shut that off and walk away for the glory of Jesus Christ. And, you know, there's several of us who struggle with all kinds of different sins. Let me tell you something. You can struggle day after day after day, and, and you have victory and purity and victory and purity, and then you fall on the fifth day. Those four days were a glory to God. Those four days are commendable and honored because in the name of Jesus Christ, for those four days, you turned away from sin. Now you fell into sin on the fifth. Repent and Go back to submitting to the Holy Spirit. Do not grieve him. Do not continually turn to your sin. Ask him and, and, and just ask him to improve and to grow and to sanctify you. That's Holy Spirit power. Holy Spirit power is when you put the interests of other people ahead of yourself. And I've seen a lot of that in this church family where people will just defer to others out of love and unity. That is the Holy Spirit working. We love Holy Spirit power. And I would suggest to you, Holy Spirit power is not power encounters where you look like the big man or the big woman. <laughs> Nobody wants to be a big woman, I suppose. But uh, <laughs> Holy Spirit power is not some power encounter where you look like you're the man. You've got the spirit. You've got the mantle of Elijah on your life. That is not Holy Spirit power. Holy Spirit power is purity. And we love Holy Spirit power. We love submitting to him. We love seeing victory over sin. May he have uh, all, all glory in our lives. So Jesus Christ is now further described as the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the king of kings in verse 5. It says here, um, and from Jesus, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of earth. Now, there are three phrases here. These three phrases represent the death of Jesus, faithful witness. That word is martyrus in Greek. That's where we get our word martyr. He's the faithful martyr. Uh, He is the firstborn from the dead. That refers to his resurrection from the dead. So he, he died, he's resurrected, and he's the king of kings, the ruler of all the kings of the earth. That either refers to his ascension. If you see this as a rule that's taking place right now, that refers to his ascension where he sits on the right hand of the Father, waiting for all nations to be subject to him. So you might say, well, because he's waiting, he's really not ruler of the kings. Well, that's fine. If you don't see this last phrase being his ascension to the right hand of the Father, then you see this as his second coming. The, 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 the uh, grammar seems to indicate that he is ruling right now. So I would say that it is his ascension that is being uh, represented here. So let's take first off the death of Jesus, the witness of Jesus. It was done at his crucifixion. 
Uh, Paul says it this way in 1 Timothy 6, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Jesus Christ, who in his testimony, his witness, before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. Uh, Jesus witnessed the good witness in the presence of Pilate. That's referring to the fact that Jesus Christ, in the face of death, spoke truth. We read it exactly in John 18. Pilate said to him, so are you a king? Jesus answered in the affirmative by saying, you say that I am a king? For this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Uh, Of course, Pilate's going to retort, what is truth? He's going to reject Jesus. He's going to send Jesus Christ to his death. And yet Jesus Christ witnessed the good witness in the presence of Pontius Pilate. He is the faithful witness to the death. Then we have this term, firstborn from the dead. That refers to his resurrection. The first one to be resurrected from the dead. And you're like, well, wait a minute. Wasn't there Elijah who raised a widow's son and Elisha who raised the Shulamite woman's son? And didn't Jesus raise Lazarus and didn't Paul raise Eutychus from the dead? And you'd be correct, they did, but not like this. See, those four men are not walking the earth today. So we would understand that they were resurrected from the dead to die another day. It was a momentary miracle, but it was not a resurrection like the resurrection of Jesus, who rose again on the third day and is alive. His body is alive forever in a glorified state. He is the firstborn from the dead. Acts chapter 26, verse 23, that the Christ must suffer and that by being first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles, the first to rise from the dead. The Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 21, For as by a man came death, by a man has also come resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. So he is the firstborn from the dead. He rose again from the dead. And then finally, we note that he is the ruler of the kings of earth. Again, I take that to be his ascension because of the grammar. He's presently ruling, even though we're going to see a literal, physical kingdom for a thousand years on earth where he is going to literally rule. But he is, in fact, sovereign now at the right hand of the Father controlling every event. I honor our president, President Joe Biden, with love because our almighty God turns the hearts of kings. He establishes all all authority. He is sovereign. And so whoever our president is, he is to be an object of honor and love. Romans 13 and other passages instruct us that. And that's because I believe God is in control. So if you see things happening now, He is currently the ruler of that. Uh, If you see this as a long-term statement about the visible kingdom, then you would say that he is the one who is going to come again and establish. And then finally, we have this doxology at the end of Jesus Christ. It's It's given for his loving us, for his freeing us from our sins by his blood, and for granting us priesthood access to the Father. Look at verse number five. And from Jesus, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of earth, to him who loves us. This is a doxology. To him who loves us 
and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The first thing you need to know from this is that Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. He says in John 15, greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. It's amazing that God loves you. If, if you were ever in a dating relationship, you know, where you thought you loved each other and then you got to know the other person or the other person got to know you and decided, no, actually, I don't love you. It's because the more they got to know of you, warts and all, the less they loved you. Understand that God knows you through and through. He knows you today. He knows you 10 years from now. But if he has chosen to place his Holy Spirit in your heart to work in you, to understand the Scriptures, to trust Jesus Christ as his Savior, then God has chosen you, and he knows you better than you know yourself. He even knows the future you. There, there is no wart for God to discover in you. There is no fault. There's nothing bad about you that God has yet to discover, and yet he loves you. Romans 5, verse 8, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. God's love. I just want to review and make sure you're clear on this today, that Romans 3.23 teaches all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's a direct quote, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So there's a lot of people in the room today, I don't know you. By the way, my name's Tim, <laughs> if I haven't introduced myself yet. I don't know you, but I know something about you, and you know something about me, that I am a sinner, that you are a sinner, that there are probably thoughts you have thought about in the past week that if everybody in the room were to know right now, you'd be very ashamed. I have those thoughts too. There are words you've said to other people in the past that have been hurtful words and maybe even destroyed relationships and you really regret them now. You're like the person who's just picking apart their house and tearing it apart and casting it to the wind with your words. I have those kind of words. There's things you've done that you're not proud of, you're ashamed of, you bear guilt for some of the things you've done. I have those deeds in my background all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And of course, the Bible does have some bad news in Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. Death to your relationships. Death to your body. Some sins lead to a death of your body. Death in your relationship with God. You're cut off from God by sin. Even as a Christian, your fellowship is interrupted. When you give yourself over to sin, you are grieving the Holy Spirit inside you. You are cutting off your relationship, your walk with God. The wages of sin is death, and eternally, that's hell. It's called the second death. It's eternal death, where Jesus said, the fire is not quenched and the worm does not die. It's a torment forever, and there is no rest. I have unsaved friends, and, and I witness Christ to them, but you know something? If they're not going to trust Christ, I just try to help them to have the best life they possibly can have. Because the reality is, when they die, there will be no rest. I mean, now, if you're sick, even if you're sick in this life, you can go to sleep and be unconscious for six or eight hours, and that's a great gift from God, when you can go unconscious, and then you wake up, and sometimes you even feel a little bit refreshed. At least you've had a break from the pain and the misery, because you were unconscious. Hell has no rest. 
So for those unsaved friends that they're just clearly not going to accept Jesus, I love them and I try to help them have the best possible life they can now because eternity is going to have no break. Uh, it's, it, really, I'm doing next to nothing for them when you look at it in proportion. But what else can I do? The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. The free gift. So you've got a wage. What you deserve for your sin is death. But there's a free gift in Christ, which is eternal life. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So now, how does this work? How does this become yours? Jesus died for the sins of the world, and yet Jesus also said, broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be that go thereat. Many is the quality. Many. Narrow is the way that leads to life, and few there be that find it. Few is the quality of the number. Few are going to find life. What is the difference? The difference is recognizing that you're a sinner and placing faith in Jesus Christ to be your Savior. Listen to Romans 10. Verse 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth confession is made, and one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. This belief is not just a mental assent that, oh yeah, Jesus lived 2,000 years ago, he died for my sin, check, good. No, this belief is a trust, a reliance on Jesus. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 13, you call on the Lord for salvation. You say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. Please save me. And you do that with a heart that is going to trust him and with a mouth that confesses, yes, he is my Savior. And you shall be saved. Also notice in verse 5 of today's text, Jesus died to liberate you from your sin. It says, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood. This freedom is twofold. It is freedom from the punishment of sin in hell, which I've just talked about. It's also free freedom from bondage to sin in this life. Jesus liberates you from your sin, and this is a good thing. If you have no desire to be liberated from your sin, I don't think you have a repentant heart. I don't think you've ever really trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. Uh, there, there should be a hatred of your sin, a loathing of your sin, a desire to participate in the cleansing. Uh, the Bible does not teach you're going to be perfect, but it does teach that children of God desire to live holy, pure lives, to live out this liberation from sin. And, and if your hard attitude is, well, I kind of like my sin, so just leave me alone, Jesus, uh, it doesn't sound like anybody who's really come to Christ. And then finally, in addition to liberating us, Jesus promotes us to a station of honorable service, making us a kingdom. We become a kingdom, his kingdom, and also priests with access to God. It says, to him who loves us, has freed us from our sin by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Jesus has promoted us into a priesthood. Hebrews 10 talks about this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. Jesus Christ died to sanctify us. 
And so when you need to approach the Father, you don't come to Pastor Tim. I am not your priest. You don't even have to go to mom and dad. You go right to the throne room of God, and with holy reverence, you make your request known to him. 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So Christ loves you. He's released you from your sin. Christ has established you as a priest in God's presence. And you may say, well, wait a minute, aren't, aren't priests limited to Jewish Levites? Well, for serving in the temple, yes. But for coming into God's throne room, no. This is written to the seven churches in uh, Asia Minor. These are Gentile churches. Yet these Gentiles are priests to God. You are a priest. You have access to the throne room of God in Jesus Christ. Use it well. So Jesus Christ has all authority as the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. He loves you. He frees you. He establishes you in a kingdom as priests before God. He is worthy of all praise. He is worthy of your trust. But you must choose to trust him. Again, from the passage I read, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Have you confessed faith in Jesus Christ? If not, I'm going to bow for just a minute of silent prayer, and you can silently pray to God and confess that you are a sinner that you are going to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior from sin. Let's bow for a moment and uh, give you that opportunity, and then I'll close us in a word of prayer. Let's pray silently, please. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit who illuminates your word in our hearts. We pray, Lord, that you would guide us, that your spirit would guide us, that we would not grieve him, that we would participate in our sanctification. Lord, I pray that if anyone is in here who has not before today trusted Christ as Savior, that today is their day of spiritual birth, that today is the day they are born again by confessing their sin and trusting Jesus Christ as Savior. Father, I pray that we would all turn from our sin and desire to be cleansed, desire to walk in fellowship with you, and that, Father, we would see every time that we turn down sin is a moment of glory to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, may we honor him. May we glorify him by persevering in goodness and turning from sin. Father, thank you for a beautiful day together. Thank you for fellowship around your word. Thank you for your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.